the wardrobe into the magical land of Narnia really is a great picture. It's great imagery. I assume you are familiar with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and the children who stumble through the wardrobe, the closet, into the magical land of Narnia. There's a scene in there, in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, when Mr. Beaver, a beaver, tells the children about Aslan, who is the lion or the king of Narnia. He is the Christ figure in these stories. And we read this. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Okay, pause there for a second. Edmund felt mysterious horror when he heard Aslan's name because his heart has already been lured away by the white witch. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her ear. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and you realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Later on, Susan will ask, but shall we see him? Are we going to see Aslan? And Mr. Beaver replies, Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him. That's what Paul is doing here in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul is leading this little church that he planted to Aslan, to Jesus He came preaching Christ crucified, and that is still Paul's message. In everything that Paul does, he is leading this church to where they shall meet Jesus, to hear his name again. So in every sermon, Paul's goal is to take this church by the hand and lead them through the wardrobe and into Narnia where they will meet Aslan. I want to be like Paul. So please pray for me that I do this with every sermon that I preach here. I don't always do it well, but in every sermon that I preach, I want to take you by the hand and lead you through the wardrobe into Narnia so that you can meet Jesus. I hope that when you hear the gospel every week, when you hear the name of Jesus every single week, I hope that you feel something jump inside of you like Edmund and Susan and Lucy. And that's Paul's goal. He preaches Christ crucified in hopes that something will jump inside each person in this church. Through his ministry, Paul wants to take this church through the wardrobe and into Narnia on that final day. And that's the hope of the gospel, is that one day we will see Aslan face to face. We will see Jesus, and we will boast and rejoice in one another in Narnia. Even, get this, even our greatest enemies in the church right now, those people that you can't stand, that get under your skin and really irk you, they will be our best friends then. I mean, imagine that. Even our greatest enemies in the church now will be our best friends then. Grace changes everything. Now until then, 
we do stumble our way through the wardrobe into Narnia, don't we? Like the children in the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, we stumble our way through to heaven. We slip on the way. We trip. Relationships do get messy. Some even turn sour. And some, sadly, will never see reconciliation and healing this side of Narnia. That's life in a fallen world that we live in. That's what sin has done. And we see it right at the very beginning of the Bible. Relationships are damaged because of sin. A marriage is damaged. A brother kills his brother. That's what sin does. It destroys. It destroys relationships. But because of Jesus, because of the hope of Narnia, sour relationships will not get the last word. Grace will. Grace changes everything, even messy relationships in the church body. One day, everything sad will come untrue. That's the hope of the Christian faith. One day, we will make our way through the wardrobe to Narnia, where we will finally see Aslan face to face. We'll see Jesus, and it will be a day of rejoicing. One big party, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And one day, God is going to walk us through the wardrobe into Narnia, and we will stand there paralyzed with joy and wonder and astonishment and relief. That's what Paul is getting at in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles, if you have it, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. One day, we will make our way into Narnia, and we will see Jesus, and we will boast and rejoice in one another like never before, even with those people who really irk us right now and just get under our skin. Think about that. We will rejoice with those Christians who really irk us and get under our skin. We'll actually be BFFs for real, forever. I told you that grace changes everything. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So Paul wants the Corinthians to know that they can trust him. He is not manipulating them like the super apostles were saying. The Corinthians can read all of Paul's letters. He's written three, at least three, by the time he writes 2 Corinthians. So this is his fourth letter. They can read all of his letters, and they can clearly understand his heart and understand his motives. It's as plain as day. They can read his tweets. They can get on his Facebook. They can follow him on Instagram. They can read all of his emails that he has sent to them. And they will discover that he has been open and honest with them the whole time. They can screen grab any tweet of his and they will see that he has been real. He has been genuine with them. But Paul's desire 
that they read and understand his heart and his motives in his letters is not so that Paul will feel justified and get a few new followers on Twitter out of that. The reason Paul wants them to understand where he is coming from is so that they will both have mutual joy and boasting on the day of Christ when Jesus returns. And so Paul, the ever-loving pastor, wants this congregation to be able to stand before the Lord with him and experience mutual joy together on that day. The phrase that Paul uses here when he says, and I hope you will fully understand, in Greek is literally to the end. Paul wants them to fully understand him right now as they read this letter and as they read his other letters, but he also means that he wants them to understand all the way to the end, to the day of Christ. From the public reading of 2 Corinthians in the church as they gather together, all the way to the very end, he wants them to understand his heart and understand his motives and not second-guess him because of what the super-apostles are telling them. But the Corinthians have misunderstood Paul here. So there is this deep-seated level of mistrust They were accusing Paul of a number of things, like lying and being deceitful to them. And so Paul is trying to clear up these misperceptions. Paul writes to tell them that he loves them regardless of their misperceptions. In fact, later on in the letter, he will tell them, My heart is wide open to you guys. My feelings for you are real. My heart's wide open. You can read it. You can sense it all. But sadly... Their misperceptions about him and about his ministry have soured the relationship and caused the Corinthians to close off and to slam the door of their affections for the beloved Apostle Paul. And so understand this, Grace. Misperceptions can sour relationships. Misperceptions can sour and ruin relationships. Sadly, the Corinthians' misperceptions about Paul and his heart and his motives and his ministry has soured their relationship. They don't trust Paul. They think he's manipulating them and being deceitful, and so their relationship has soured. And that can happen anywhere, can't it? In the church, workplace, in a family. And we're all prone to do this, right? We start to think that we know what someone's motives are. We start thinking that's why they did this. We assume that we know what someone's motives are. And we think that we know what's going on in their hearts. But we really can't, can we? But we assume that, and then we begin to act differently based on our assumptions of what's happening in someone's heart. We begin to think differently and treat them differently based on our so-called discernment and our perception of their heart. And so misperceptions sour human hearts and human relationships. Listen, we are not competent to do what the Corinthians are claiming to do here. We are not skilled 
in judging human hearts. We, we just can't. We don't have that skill set, even though we all at times act like it. Only Jesus can see and read human hearts. We can't. The Corinthians thought they could read Paul's heart, and it began to sour their relationship. Let's not do that as a church. Let's be a church that gives the benefit of the doubt to one another, okay? Paul is giving the Corinthians the benefit of the doubt here. He says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge just as you did partially acknowledge us. He's giving them the benefit of the doubt here. Let's follow Paul's lead. Let's be a church that doesn't assume that we know what's going on inside of a person's heart, what they do, why they do it. By God's grace, let's do our best not to assume what's happening inside someone's heart. I did this yesterday with with Heather, with my own wife. She said something, and I said, you said that and did that because of this. And she said, you don't know that. And I was like, you're right. I fall into this trap. Or I think I know why someone's doing what they're doing or what they're thinking. Listen, it is dangerous to feed the monster of assumption. Don't do it. And you have to picture it as a monster of assumption. Because if you feed the monster of assumption, it will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow up until it eventually consumes you. It will devour you. If you start down that path, it will sour your relationships. That's exactly what happened at Corinth. The Corinthians were having conversations with the super apostles, this group of false teachers who had invaded their church, and they began listening to those guys, and then they began assuming what Paul's motives were. They thought they knew exactly what was happening in Paul's heart. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. Paul said, I'm going to come and see you. I wanted to come and see you, then go on and come back and see you again. And they said, you know what? You were tricking us. You were lying. They're assuming they know Paul's motives. And if we begin to believe that we know what is happening in other people's hearts like this, we will then start having monologues in our own hearts where we convince ourselves that we are right in our assumptions. And then we will begin to act on these monologues that we're having in our hearts that tell us we're right. We will begin treating people based on what we think is going on in their heart as if somehow we really know what's going on in their heart. And living that way will destroy every relationship we have because we're always assuming that we know what people are thinking and we're always reinforcing to ourselves that we are correct in our assumptions. And it just feeds pride is what it does. Let me ask you, do you ever have conversations in your head with other people? Like maybe you're driving to work or brushing your teeth, taking a shower. Do you ever do you have these conversations in your head with people that you're having conflict with and your magnificent words that you share with the person that irks you, totally shuts them down, and they just bow to your wisdom. And then you win the conversation, you win the argument. Do you ever have conversations with other people in your head where you always come out on top? Do you ever have these long monologues where you listen to your own so-called wisdom? 
the thoughts and the conversations and the monologues that we have in our hearts, that is the real us. That's scary, huh? The thoughts that we have in our hearts about other people, the conversations we have in our hearts with them. They're going to say this, well, I'm going to say this, and if they come back with that, and I'm going to say this. And the monologues that we have, all in our own hearts, that is the real us. No matter what we portray to everybody else, that's the real us. That stings, doesn't it? And frankly, it's a little embarrassing, isn't it? It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to see what really is in our own heart instead of pointing out what is in the heart of another person. To look inward and say, oh my gosh, that's inside of me? That's embarrassing. One of my heroes, Jack Miller, said, we recovering Pharisees often find that in our minds we have collected albums full of dark snapshots of other people. Whoa, let me read it again. Think about it. We recovering Pharisees who think, you know, we have it all together. We, we make the right assumptions. We know people's hearts. We recovering Pharisees often find that in our minds we have collected albums full, photo albums full of dark snapshots, dark pictures of other people. Ouch, <laughs> How many of you right now in your minds have photo albums full of dark snapshots, dark pictures, dark Polaroids of other people? How many of you have photo albums full of bitterness towards others and anger and hatred and jealousy and insecurities and assumptions? How many have photo albums in your mind of all the bad feelings you have toward some people? Probably all of us, right? <laughs> if we're honest. And disciples should be. I know I do. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus even died for that. He died for that pettiness. And that's what it is really, isn't it? It's just petty. It, it's, it's not seeing the cross, but seeing our own little kingdom. Jesus died for that sin too. He never did that with people, and yet he credits his perfect life to people like us who keep photo albums full of photo albums of dark snapshots of other people. So let's believe this morning that Jesus died for that sin too. Thank God he died for that. And Jesus can set us free from those enslaving photo albums in our mind that we return to over and over again as we rehearse and nurse our wounds. It's like flipping to a photo album and see like, they wronged me there. That guy wronged me there. Oh, that person there. There's healing for that too. Let's throw away those photo albums that we have collected that are full of dark pictures of other people. And let's live free. That's no way to live. It isn't. Let's not stay in the bondage of jealousy and anger and bitterness anymore. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from this trap of making assumptions of people and their motives. We can find rest if we humble ourselves. So let's be honest today. 
we all know some people in the church that get under our skin, right? You know there is someone here at Grace that just drives you bonkers. Admit it. You're thinking of them right now, aren't you? There is someone here that you hope doesn't sit next to you at some barbecue chicken dinner. And you're probably thinking of them right now. But let this truth humble each one of us, okay? Get ready to be humbled, okay? Just as there is someone who irritates you and gets under your skin and they drive you bonkers and when you see them or hear them, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Are you with me? Just as we all have someone like that in our life, are you ready? Here comes the rebuke. You're that person to someone else. (laughs) I'm that person to someone else. Who, me? Yeah, you and me. But, But everyone loves me. No, they don't. They struggle with you the same way that you struggle with that person that bothers you. Some of y'all tuned in for a good sermon this morning. You're like, I didn't pay for that. Listen, we want to be free, don't we? Jesus is going to have to slice open our heart through these verses today so that we can be healed and be set free. It's true. You are that person to someone else. But the good news for sinners like us who think this way is that one day God is going to walk all of us hand in hand through the wardrobe into Narnia and we will stand there paralyzed with joy and wonder and astonishment and relief. (laughs) Relief. One day we'll just be paralyzed with joy like I can't believe I'm here and, and wonder, oh my goodness, it's better than I dreamed. And astonishment, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe that guy's here. And then relief. No more sin. No more dark snapshots of other people in my mind and heart. And we'll be perfect then. And we'll look around and those Christians who irritated us the most, we will be so happy to see them. We will, as Paul says here, boast and exult and rejoice in one another on that day. One day, the day of the Lord Jesus, those people that I struggle to love the most will be my best friends. (laughs) Think about that. If that's you, one day, you and me are going to be best friends. Those people who get on my nerves, they will be my best friends. And all the people that I bother, and I know there's so many, And all the people that I get underneath their skin, I will be their best friend too. Wow. Behold the humbling power of the gospel. One day, all of the, you get on my nerves, that person gets under my skin, I can't stand that guy, her personality is like nails on a chalkboard, one day, all of that will be gone. One day, we will boast and exult and rejoice in one another, even those people we can't stand to be around right now. Behold the humbling power of Aslan's gospel. Some of y'all may need some time 
to let that sink in. But we got to move on. You can catch up. We're going to be in verse 14. Look there again. Just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So far from being obsessively compulsive about how this church views him, Paul's pastoral concern is that they boast in one another on that final day. His concern in ministry is not what people think of him. He's not trying to get people to like him. His concern is how they will rejoice together on that final day when Jesus returns. And he wants that to invade their life now. He wants them to understand what he's saying here. But Paul is not a slave to what they think of him. Understand that Paul is not a slave to what people think of him. He told them in 1 Corinthians 4, it matters very little what you think of me. He's resting in Christ. So yes, you and I should be concerned and care when relationships sour. Just like Paul here, he's concerned. We should be sad. We should be heartbroken. But if relationships are your righteousness, your functional righteousness, how you live, how you thrive... If relationships are your righteousness, if how people perceive you, if what people think about you is where you are getting your worth, is where you are getting your value, is where you are getting your peace and your happiness, then guess what? You will be crushed when it doesn't happen. When they don't like you, you'll be crushed. If you're getting your hope, and your peace, and your value, and your worth from your relationships instead of from Christ, if you're getting it from what people think about you, then you will be crushed when they fail. You'll be crushed when you are rejected. You'll be crushed when you are not accepted. And so Paul is not so much concerned about how this church praises him. He's not. He's concerned, number one, that they accept his apostolic authority. And number two, that they believe the true gospel. And number three, how they together on that final day will rejoice together and give praise to Jesus for his grace in their lives. He wants them to understand truth, not make assumptions. Paul's not out to win a popularity contest here. He says, I want you to understand truth. I want you to understand the gospel. Now think about this. One day, the Corinthians, who are making all these assumptions about Paul, one day they would boast and exult and rejoice in Paul, even though they aren't doing that right now. They were doubting his care for them, doubting his love for them, doubting his credentials as a pastor and as an apostle. But on that final day, they would rejoice in him. They would boast in Paul on that day. Wow. I mean, think about this. We will boast in one another on that final day because of God's grace. We'll look at one another and say, I can't believe we made it. How did we get here? It was all grace. We just simply trusted in what Jesus did for us, and that's how we ended up here. We'll look one another in the eyes and say, I'm so glad it wasn't riding on me. 
How in the world did I get here? It was all grace. And we'll jump up and down with one another, just rejoicing in God's grace. I wanted to show a clip of it, but with live streaming copywriting, the picture that came into my mind was, if you've seen the show, the movie, That Thing You Do, where the Wonders, the Oneaters, finally hear their song on the radio for the first time, and Faye runs down the street with one earbud in listening, and they all gather in the appliance store, and they're just jumping up and down because their song is on the radio. That will be us on that final day, just jumping up and down and saying, we're here, we're here, we're here. The Corinthians were losing sight of that, losing sight of what eternity would be like. Mutual joy. Joy in God, God's joy over us, and our joy in others. They were forgetting all that they would enjoy for eternity. And that's how we are in this life too, huh? There are relational problems with other believers, and we forget that we're going to enjoy one another's company forever. The problems of our day, the relational strains, have a way of choking out all the promises of ours that are in Christ right now. Through all of the suffering and all of the accusations and all of the lies, Paul still has his eye on that final day when he and this little church would boast in one another in the presence of Jesus. He's not distracted by all the drama. And there's a lot of drama that could distract him. But where is his focus? It's on that final day. He's like that valiant mouse Rebacheep in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader who single-mindedly sought Aslan's country by saying this. He said, while I can, I, sh- I sail east in the Dawn Treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle or boat. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Reap a cheap. I was reminded this morning. Reap a cheap is doing what the preacher of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 too. When he says, looking to Jesus. That's what reap a cheap is doing. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Literally, the Greek there in Hebrews 12, 2, I saw it this morning, is seeing off into Jesus, looking away, and not just looking to Jesus, but looking away and seeing off into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's what Reepicheep is doing. He's seeing off into Narnia, seeing off into Aslan's country, looking away from sin, and seeing off into eternity with Jesus and the new earth. That's what Paul is saying in Hebrews 12. That's what he's getting at in 2 Corinthians 1. He sees off into the... Paul didn't say that in Hebrews 12. (laughs) The preacher of Hebrews said that. But Paul sees off into the day of Jesus when they would boast and rejoice in one another and in Christ. But it's not just for then, is it? We are united to Christ by faith now. And so we don't long for the return of Christ, and we don't long for Narnia so that we may be united to Christ then. Rather, we are united to him by faith now. We just wait and long for, like Reepicheep, 
the consummation of that union. And so Narnia will be the continued and unabated unfolding of our riches in Christ. So why does Reepicheep the mouse want to go to Aslan's country to be with Aslan? It's all about Jesus. We're made for a person and a place. Jesus is the person, heaven, the new earth is the place. But the place is meaningless if Jesus isn't there. And the gospel is powerless and gives no hope if it can't reconcile all things, even relationships. The hope of the gospel is that when you arrive in Narnia one day, you'll have a bunch of new best friends. Those you struggled to love in this life will be your best friends. The day of Jesus will be a day of reuniting with old and new friends. But not for everyone. When Paul speaks about the day of Jesus here, though he doesn't spell it out more, the day of Jesus is a day of judgment and fear for those who have refused the gift that Jesus is offering. So make sure you don't refuse him. Eternal punishment in hell awaits all who refuse him. And so hell will be full of people who think, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not bad. I'm I'm a good person. Hell will be full of people like that. In their eyes, they're good. And heaven, Narnia, will be full of people who know they don't deserve to be there because they know just how bad they were. Narnia will be like what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 7, that God, for the ages to come, God is going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us who are in Christ. And commenting on Ephesians 2, 7, Dane Ortland says this, what does that mean for those in Christ? It means that one day God is going to walk us through the wardrobe into Narnia and we will stand there paralyzed with joy, wonder, astonishment, and relief. It means that as we stand there, we will never be scolded for the sins of this life, never looked at askance, and never told, enjoy this, but remember, you don't deserve this. The very point of heaven and eternity is to enjoy his grace in kindness. And if the point of heaven is to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness, then we are safe. Because the one thing we fear will keep us out, our sin, can only heighten the spectacle of God's grace and kindness. It means that our fallenness now is not an obstacle to enjoying heaven. It is the key ingredient to enjoying heaven. Whatever mess we have made of our life, that's part of our final glory and calm and radiance. That thing we've done that sent our life into meltdown, That is where God in Christ becomes more real than ever in this life and more wonderful to us in the next. And those of us who have been pretty squeaky clean will get there one day and realize more than ever how deeply sin and self-righteousness and pride and all kinds of willful subconscious rebellions were way down inside us and how all that sends God's grace in kindness soaring and we too will stand astonished at how great his heart is for us. 
on the day of Jesus, we will stand astonished at his great heart for people like us. Aslan will shake his mane and make all things new. He'll shake his mane and all the sad things that we know in this world, all of the sour relationships, everything that we feel so deeply right now, where we're wounded, all of that will become untrue. All the broken relationships will become untrue. Behold the power of Aslan's gospel. He shakes his mane and all is made new. It's like that old Narnian rhyme. Maybe you read it. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. May that Narnian gospel rhyme give you a sensation of mysterious horror if you're like Edmund and your heart has been captivated by the white witch. If you're not trusting in Christ, let that image of Aslan, let that image of Jesus coming again strike you with a sensation of mysterious horror. And then may you repent of your sins and call out to Jesus and be saved. But if you're a Christian this morning and you're in Christ, may you suddenly feel brave and adventurous when you think about your King Jesus. And may it be as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music has just floated by you. And may you get the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it is the beginning of your vacation. It's the beginning of summer. May that feeling be real to you this morning, tangible in your heart when you hear the good news that Jesus is coming again to make all things new. And may you long for Narnia again. May you be astonished at his great heart for you. One day, God is going to walk us through the wardrobe into Narnia and we will stand there paralyzed with joy and wonder and astonishment and relief. And then we'll jump up and down like the wonders on that thing you do and be so excited and happy. I read this morning, let's close, it's not in the notes, but I read this morning question 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, what comfort, notice that word comfort, with what follows. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? Answer, that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into the heavenly joys and glory. That's the passageway into Narnia right there. Question 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism.
Do you think of comfort when you think of Christ coming again to judge the dead? Yes, comfort. Because he will bring justice to this world. But he will also translate us and all his chosen ones, even those that we disagree with now, he will translate us through the wardrobe into Narnia to be with him and to enjoy heavenly joys and glory. Listen, Aslan is on the move. Go tell someone this good news today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are making all things new right now. Your kingdom is advancing in this world. As the preacher of Hebrews says, we are receiving that kingdom now. Lord, help us to share this good news with other sinners because you are coming to judge the quick and the dead one day. And only those who are safe in you, Jesus, will be safe on that day. So give us opportunities to share Christ, to share you, Jesus, with others. You're doing great things in our city and on the central coast and in our world. Continue. Use us. Lord, when we get discouraged, may we remember that we're going to make it through the wardrobe one day into everlasting joy and peace with you in Narnia. Thank you for saving us. Help us to share that good news with others this week. In your name we pray, amen.